You are listening to the protagonist of the erotic. Produced by Extra Extra. Each episode is dedicated as an act of love to the libidinal ouvreur of a living person. Desired object or location that can be visited in the present day. We discover what it means to define and shape sensuality, framed within the dynamic context of modern urban life. The bed, a space of refuge and comfort where, while wrapped in bed linens or a soft eiderdown quilt, our dreams and fantasies unfold. Under the clouds of the duvet, in the darkness, intimacies are exchanged between bodies, hands searching, flesh tenderly touched. A centerpiece of domesticity. The psychic landscape of the bed belongs to the private sphere, but, according to James Taylor Foster, its role in contemporary society is far more expansive. On our phones and laptops, reading, texting, exchanging emails, and taking meals propped up on pillows. This is where social lives are forged, corporate empires are built, and great novels are written. Between the sheets, James speaks to the sensuous connotations of the bed, a piece of furniture which is far more than just a place of rest. I have a faint recollection of standing before the great bed of Ware. I was young, and I don't remember the context of this memory, where or how. I just remember the bed itself—an enormous three-meter-wide four-poster, most likely constructed as a tourist attraction in late 16th-century England. Before becoming a museum object. It's now housed at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. It was reputedly able to accommodate at least four couples in one frenzied night of sleep. The bed of wear makes a strong case for being the most famous piece of English furniture, but it's not a typical museum exhibit. 
unlike other distinguished pieces in the V&A's collection whose histories are discreetly private, dignified and serious, the Bed of Ware trails a reputation that's sociable, jovial, sometimes badly behaved, even downright disreputable. It is twice the size of other surviving Elizabethan beds, and for me, the most convincing hypothesis as to why the bed was created is as an outside curiosity to attract customers to one of the many coaching inns in the town of Ware in Hertfordshire. As early as 1596, a German tourist, Prince Ludwig Anhalt Koten, slept in what must have been the bed, and years later, he recorded his visit, describing four couples sleeping side by side with so much room that they wouldn't disturb one another. The bed always had a bawdy reputation. The bigger the bed, the more room for companions and the more opportunity for mischief. The tales become exaggerated over time, and in 1765, it was said that 26 butchers and their wives lay in the bed one night for a bet. Guests who spent a night in this vast bed, stopping at the inn in which it was housed on their way north from the capital, would engrave their names in its oak edifice or drip a seal of red wax as proof of a night spent. And edifice really is the best descriptive word. This bed is more at the scale of a small building or a baldacchino. Being a child, it seemed, relatively speaking, larger than it actually is. But it is big. Columns, curtains, ornamentation, a soffit. The great bed of Ware is more than a refuge or a nest. It is a room. For most of us, when we think of a bed, we do not think of it as a room. It's a furnishing, a thing that sits inside a room, a soft ground. A pliant thing, full of safety and comfort and warmth that flexes to the curves of our heaviest parts, hips and leg, head and back. It's the region of a daily routine in which we become partially buried or submerged, sheathed by something that's soft as skin. My bed is simple, a basic 30 centimeter thick mattress resting on the floor beneath the eaves, covered in pillows and sheets. Surrounded by piles of books and dimmable lights on the floor, it itself is an extension of the floor. Things fall off during the night and need to be put back come morning. If I stretch my leg over its edge, my feet touch cold wood. When I wake on a summer morning, the light streams in from a roof light and two glass doors. The sky is framed, visible from certain positions, and the moon can shine aggressively inwards. For me, it's important that a bed does not touch the walls that surround it, that it sits in the center of a space, and it sits so unobstructed. I'm not sure why this has become a habit. It's probably ill-advised by both energetics and spatial designers. I don't feel an urge to heave large bed frames out from their positions when in a hotel room, of course. It's just that I find ergonomic add-ons, like a headboard, redundant. 
bedside tables are superfluous when the floor is just centimeters away. of regimes begin and end with a bed. It's a symbolic object of design, of desire and defeat. In a quickening world, we have become fanatical about sleep and sleep deprivation. Sleep is no longer a form of rest, but rather an excuse for rest. We try to give ourselves the best possible conditions by tracking our sleep, surrounding the bed with white or brown noise, performing rituals, taking pills. We blame the cosmos for a restless night rather than our own patterns of life. Come morning, we set alarms to break our slumber and slowly re-enter the world, because bed is a sort of a liminal space. In our minds, it is private. It is ours. Perhaps it's our partners too. We might invite others into it, but those are likely few and far between. In short, it is a space which we nurture, a space which, more than others, we have some control over. Over the course of a lifetime, with the exception of hotel beds, airplane seats or the occasional overnight couch, we craft and cultivate, subconsciously or otherwise, an environment that suits us, our bodies and our temperaments. At least, that's how the bed tends to be understood. The fact is, though, the bed is no longer a place for or defined by sleep, rest or sex. It's also a place for eating, for watching things surrounded by screens, to bolt to when downcast or content, a place for work. And bedded work is interesting to unpick. Even when we're asleep, we're shedding two grams of skin, flushing our brains of toxins and dreaming. That's a sort of work. Awake, we can earn real money in beds. Duvets simmering under the heat of a laptop, cables trailing, our phones never too far from our grasp. Some run moderately successful OnlyFans from bed, jerking off to a cash register sound. Outside of online sex work, bed can trigger that sort of productivity which can be offered in return for cold hard cash. Ergonomically imprudent, but comfortable nonetheless. I know people who take all their meetings, write poetry, fill out spreadsheets, read voraciously from bed. It's more comfortable than a desk or a chair. Who has reason for a defined space these days anyway?
There's nothing new to all this. Outliers have always been using the modern bed as a place of work. Hugh Hefner ran a media empire from a bespoke circular bed in his Playboy mansion. James Joyce would write while lying on his stomach, necessitating a gentle surface. Frida Kahlo painted completely horizontal, surrounded by tubes, brushes and blankets. The very act of being in bed can prompt a space of hypnagogia, the period of drowsiness that precedes sleep. For some of us, this state of mild hallucinogenic composure can be a source of inspiration. In order to remain in these margins for as long as possible, Salvador Dali is said to have slept arm outstretched and clutching a key. When he would begin to drift out of hypnagogia and into sleep proper, the key would fall from his hand and onto a metal plate. The sound reawoke him with enough of a jolt so that the liminal state might continue indefinitely. In 1957, the writer Patty Hill interviewed author Truman Capote for the Paris Review. Responding to a question about his writing habits, Capote said, I am a completely horizontal author. I can't think unless I'm lying down, either in bed or stretched on a couch, and with a cigarette and coffee handy. Today, some call this soft work. I suppose someone was attempting to think of a term contra to the idea of hard work. Soft work, prior to our most recent pandemic, also describes those sorts of in-between casual relationships cultured between meetings in a conventional place of work. Whatever the term stands for, this sort of binary thinking is problematic. Soft work is work, just as hard work is. Well, in all honesty, just about any time my Zoom camera was off, I was working from bed. And I don't mean late at night, dashing off a last few emails. I mean like at 2 p.m. on a Wednesday. Some people might call that low-level depression, and some people might have a point. Still, I can't be the only one, right? For the record, I've always kind of been this way, if there's something hard that needs doing, I like to be as comfortable as possible while doing it. I just think my brain functions better when the rest of my body is being cradled by a mattress. There is a withering line between our public and private selves, which corresponds to an evolving relationship to supposed places of rest and sites of activity. Either we have forgotten what rest is, or the very idea of rest and recuperation is changing. The NAP Ministry, an organization that explores the liberating power of naps, deploys rest as a healing practice. Founded by Tricia Hersey in 2016, their Rest is Resistance framework wants, in their words, to help deprogram the masses from grind culture. Among other programs designed to resurrect rest, they facilitate collective napping exercises in the likes of parks and museums, covering the ground with blankets, pillows and yoga mats, and augmenting the space with music, meditation and spoken word. 
Naps provide a portal to imagine, invent, and heal. This work is a battle cry for being sick and tired of capitalism and white supremacy. A resting place. An alternative and temporary space of joy and freedom. The way both systems view human beings is evil and unsustainable. No one is being seen clearly within them and instead is viewed as less than human and a machine to be used, abused, and overworked. This is a meditation on rest as resistance. This is a meditation on rest as reparations. This is a reverberation from my ancestors. May my deeds in this life please them. May the bass of drums shake liberation from trees. May you join us as we rest. The NAP ministry is for resistance and for the softening. The rest is resistance message is for us to hold in our hands, hug while we sleep, and lay down as we think about all the ways our bodies can hold space for liberation. Resting our bodies and minds is a form of reverence. When we honor our bodies via rest, we are connecting to the deepest parts of ourselves. We are freedom making. What stories are we holding deep inside that are untold and uncovered because we are too exhausted. This rest work is holding space for our memories, our micro histories, and all the things that make us human. The idea of rest as resistance and rest as reparations can be challenging to distill in a few lines when I'm asked to do a quick take. It's counterintuitive to believe rest to not be a place to waste time, but instead a generative place of freedom and resistance. We have never learned this in our culture. The thought of not doing even for a short time is seen as lazy and unproductive. So an explanation for Rest as a form of justice is layered and nuanced. I have learned that one of the most concise and true ways to share the message of rest is to say, rest makes us more human. It brings us back to our humanness. To be more human. To be connected to who and what we are are truly at the heart of our rest message. I must confess that I have not had the privilege of experiencing a curated collective napping experience. The closest I might have been is the morning following a forest rave slumped over a mossy rock. 
The NAP ministry, however, is reclaiming the power of the dashed and dotted line that is being redrawn between public and private sleep space. As a space constructed to allow an individual to rest alongside others, it embodies a beautiful blurriness. And the bed is everywhere. One day in 2018, I found myself in a bed in Venice, Italy. I was in that bed with Beatrice Colomina, who was hosting one of the now-fabled bed-ins, a performative recreation of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's protests for peace, in which they invited the world's press into hotel rooms between nine and nine. About the company that you and Yono have uh, formed, this bag, Yoko. bag production, bag productions bag is production. uh, what takes care of our business, you know, that's books, films and records. Well now you see, John and Yoko is a team, you see, and uh, we're doing it together. But, but you were a filmmaker before, are you still going to make films? Yes. We're making films together now. Yes. Well, you're on one, now. <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah. <laughs> you're in it. I think they might think I'm going to uh, hot up the revolution, you know, I want to cool it down. That's why we're doing this, because it's very urgent. I mean, every one of us are in it. If we make people laugh, that's enough. Mm -hmm. Happiness is a good vibe for peace. But they could, they I'm could. saying, grow your hair for peace. Oh, cut it off. Mm. Have some sign on it that's for peace, you know. All we're saying is, if you think you can do better, do it. You top it. Stop asking us, do you think it's going to work? You know, do something yourself. Um, y your little daughter is very much involved in, in the peace movement. Oh, do you yes. think that more children should be? Yes, in, I hope so. Yes. How should it be accomplished? Well, we're not here to preach. This is our way of saying we're with you, you know, to the young generation. I'm a dreadful Neanderthal fascist. How do you do? <laughs> 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 That's a nice introduction. Do you like to sit on the edge of the bed here? Well, I, I like to have something hard, for instance. Uh, this is too okay, seductive. Can you get a chair? Yeah, there, there's a chair. chair. Right the well, I, I like yeah, well, we're those famous freaks. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, part of the game. Uh, yeah, it's, I, you know, I, 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 so far you've been confronted mainly with admirers, and I may wind up to be one. You never can tell. We've had all sorts in here, believe me. I'm sure you have. I, uh, one of the things that, that uh, interested me was the, the method you've chosen. You, this is to inspire peace, clearly. Yeah. yeah. We're trying to sell it like soap, you know, and the right. only way to sell is to focus attention and sell every day. Well, you feel that being in bed compels more attention than if you were sitting on chairs. Yes, yeah. and it makes it easier for us because we talk ten functions. hours a day and it's functional for yeah. us to be lying down. Uh, being in bed is one thing, but, but uh, uh, you could go further, you could shower together. Yes, of course. We just did it. That, yeah. Actually, I did it alone. Well, now, now, ask me this. Now, when, when you have uh, someone seated here who is beginning to get the message, and suddenly, you know, you feel the call of nature or something like that, yeah. as you're bound to, do you leave, do you abandon the guy, break up the mood, or can he go with you? If he wants to, I suppose, nobody's ever asked. I see, all right, I just wondered whether, uh, you know, people were, uh, you wanted, whether you wanted the to risk. The message is that they've got to think for themselves and do it themselves, you know, so uh, they should go and pee themselves. All right, now, let's say that some other couple uh, wanted, inspired by what you're doing, lying in bed for peace, wanted to carry this theme on. Now, clearly, 
they could lie in bed. I mean, beetle limitations aren't really as hot as they used to be. But let's say they wanted to carry this thing on. Let's say they want to carry. What is the next step they do for peace? Uh, we don't know the next step, next step till we get to it, you know. No, no, but but let's say you're an, an even more committed couple than you. Yes. Even more it's willing to It's up to them to, to think of it. We're set. We're I see. But this is the way to do it. Yeah. This is a way. This is a way. Yes. And we're just we're wishing that uh, the next generation is much wiser than us, and they'll think a wiser scheme. They were wielding the bed as a workspace, but it was also the place in which they slept and rested, and likely fucked and ate. In the Dutch pavilion in the Giardini of the Biennale, which was that year dedicated to themes around work, body and leisure, Beatrice's guests found themselves propped up beneath a duvet and decked in striped pyjamas, chatting before a bemused, if not entertained, audience. The bed, which Beatrice positions as a unique horizontal architecture in the age of social media, operated as a candid, intimate platform. The line between what was private and what was public drawn much like a stage in theatre. There was a fourth wall, kind of. There was a lot of slippage between who was in the fishbowl, to borrow Lennon's words, and who was looking in. I recall feeling somewhat at a loss as to what to do in that bed while chatting, who to look at, how to sit, whether or not to lie down, in which way to perform. It was early summer, so the pyjamas were just costume and the duvet was for show. I also hadn't eaten much that day, so while we sat, we munched on a box of cut fruit from a nearby kiosk. Here, publicity and privacy, to borrow Beatrice's words, were at odds. But were these spheres ever separate to begin with? In Pink Flamingos, John Waters' infamous 1972 film, a cult classic once widely banned, Divine, playing the filthiest person alive, breaks into her nemesis, the marble's picket-fenced home. You, as viewer now largely accustomed to the film's exercise in poor taste, are not necessarily surprised by scenes of Divine and her son rubbing and licking the marble's furniture and personal effects. Mounted on their marital bed, fingers between the sheets, she exclaims, Think of them, thrashing and moaning in the still of the night. Running and rubbing room to room, stairwell, sitting, dining, the very futility of functional separation of the 1970s American home becomes self-evident. Pushing the limits of profanity and candor, Waters' films have a habit of exposing the most obvious, most under-discussed aspects of Western society. A desire to re-evaluate what the bed stands for and what it harbours has been underway for a long time. We are contained by the bed, but the bed contains more than we imagine. Thank you for joining Extra Extra on this listening experience. 
It's been a pleasure to have welcomed you on a journey through this episode of The Protagonist of the Erotic. Please visit us at extraextramagazine.com where you can hear more about our auditory programme and discover further editorial content exploring the intertwinement of sensuality and the city. 